from NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. This is episode 138 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I'm your host, Amanda Bruce. Today, we are pleased to bring the best of 2020, the episode that was listened to the most, viewed the most on our website, and voted by you, our listeners. The best of 2020 is an episode born, like most of the year, within trauma, pain, and grief. And as I listen to this interview again, I can even hear the pain in my voice as I introduce our speaker, Father Joseph Brown. Even my voice cracks at one point. It took me several tries to record the introduction for the episode that day, as I was overcome with emotion and sadness. But this episode isn't about me. It's about the lives of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, just to name a very few. Since this interview has been released, more Black lives have been killed in the United States in a pandemic that surged through this country well before the COVID-19 pandemic. Father Joseph Brown, plenum address speaker at the 2020 National Convention, sat with us and Father Brown begins the conversation by reflecting on the uprising across the country and the world to support the Black community and to take action towards anti-racist policies and true social change. And today, serendipitously, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, as we replay this episode, we are still listening, we are still learning. In order to respect the episode at hand, I will not be editing any of my original introduction and closing remarks. Thank you to those who listened and voted for this interview, and I'll see you back here next Monday. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 107 of Ministry Monday. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I'm your host, Amanda Bruce. Today's Ministry Monday episode is proudly sponsored by Worship Now Publishing. Create rich, worshipful, and balanced liturgies that make the scriptures come to life while engaging the faithful into full and active participation at Mass with Worship Now's free liturgical music planner. Register now for free at worshipnowpublishing.com. Today on the podcast, I get the chance to speak to Father Joseph Brown. Father Brown is a professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale and is one of our plenum speakers at this year's NPM convention. I'll admit to you that I was humbled to speak to Father Brown 
I've never been so nervous to speak to an interviewee for the podcast in my life because this week I learned how much I still need to learn about the racism that pulses through the veins of our country. In the past week, my eyes have been opened to how my silence works against the cause of equality and social justice. And so I prepared to sit down with Father Brown. I started by reading his interview from the Southern Illinoisian, a Southern Illinois newspaper. The article mentioned Brianna Taylor and linked back to a news article about her. I read the article related to her being shot eight times in her own home. That article cited the death of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia several weeks prior. I sat and read every article I could, and I watched a video breakdown of how Arbery's death occurred. From there, I read more and more articles linked to deaths in the black community that simply shouldn't have happened. And lastly, I watched the combined footage of George Floyd. I watched it, and then I watched it again. From there, my education began my education into the privilege I inherited as a white woman and the privilege I hope to use to voice that black lives matter and to help facilitate change. That was the context from where I spoke to Father Brown today. Father Brown begins the conversation by reflecting on the uprising across the country and the world to support the black community and to take action towards anti-racist policies and real social change. I think that part of the uprising we're watching now is people saying, your homework is overdue. You have done what you should have done. And now you're going to have to really go to school. And the distractions that are being thrown out there by people just like, again, an unruly child in a grade school classroom who wants to deflect the teacher's attention from the fact that he has not done his homework. So he's just going to cause a disturbance and get everybody all upset and things. And then the next thing you know, the bell will ring and it's too late. Now, I've been living with that since I started grade school. (laughs) And I know how to deal with those kinds of students in my classroom. But what's amazing is that young people are saying to America, this has got to be something you take very, very seriously. And where the pressure is on me and a few other people that I know so well is that we're being called to be kind of like those substitute emergency teachers that we got, we've been working overtime the last couple of weeks. Now, I don't mind that because I know it is so important. And the whole point is that people are sincere, you deal with them. It's what is really aggravating to all of us are the people who are not sincere. But I'm watching this whole country stop. When I heard on the news the other night that the mayor of Los Angeles, I think, is taking something like $100 million out of the police budget and putting it into economic and, and, and community development in the black section of Los Angeles, I'm going, now that's not just a fad and some emotional response. 
this is what the point is. Now, driving over here so I could do this uh, interview, I was listening to something on public radio about the highest incidence of deaths from COVID-19 on the Navajo Nation. And as I was listening to the people who are part of that nation talking about, you can't ask us to respond to this pandemic when 30% of the people on the Navajo Nation lands don't have running water because they don't have pipes. And if till you give us running water, you can't say we should be washing our hands or doing this, this, and this. And we don't have clinics and we don't have nurses and we don't have doctors. Now, whatever we're going through in the streets of America, somebody's got to pay attention to the fact that there are even, there are people who have been more the victims of genocide, neglect, and insult and abuse. When I think about the, in the Roman Catholic Church, in my own religious community of the Jesuits and how they have had to, since the New York Times, what, three years ago, published that incredible set of articles about how the Jesuits in Maryland owned slaves and sold so many of them in 1838 to 272, promising them that they would be sold as intact families to Catholic families in the South, and none of it happened. Well, there's a massive, massive response within the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, about how to deal with anti-racism because as someone said to me on the phone last week, what they did in Maryland moved west. But when you stop and think about slavery moved west, religion moved west, and genocide moved west, all in the name of the church, the people who did this believed in God and knew that they were the specially dedicated people of God. And when you want to talk about um, baptismal promises, the worst thing you can do is break the covenant that you, that you voluntarily entered into. And that's the denial of your baptismal promises. And how can we, and there was a, well, the year after, the month after of Obama's second inauguration, I had been invited to go to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. I didn't know anything about the National Prayer Breakfast except that they hold it every year and the presidents always go to it. I had not any, I had done no homework on it. And when I did do homework on it, I found myself sick to my stomach, right wing, viciously political church members who were taking money from the really well off here in this country and going into Africa and spreading a version of Christianity that was killing people. I went there. There was something like 2,900 people there. There were the president and the vice president and their spouses, and you had members of Congress, the House of Representatives, the senators, and it was, and it became, obviously, it was a political rally. Well, they had breakout sessions. And I went to one of them, and the panel discussion was talking about, somebody got up and said, well, what you all believe in this and this? What about uh, gay people? What is, the, do you really believe, don't you think that we have to love the sinner but hate the sin? 
And they went on to a diatribe against all those people with those gender identifications. And I finally had enough of it. So I raised my hand and said, do you all know where Christianity got started? It got started with people who had to flee oppression and genocide in Pharaoh's Egypt with an intervention from God when it says they groaned under their oppression and God heard them. That phrase out of Exodus is where I start my reflections on black theology. And I have fought people on MSNBC, at the Washington Post, at the New York Times, anybody who ever says anywhere in my hearing that, well, what do you expect us to do? Just all sit around and sing Kumbaya? <laughs> and I don't have a lot of patience. I know that's a virtue. But that's a, you know, there's so many virtues you have to live up to. And I don't use that one as the top of my list because I know that the beginning song of black theology is kumbaya, come by here. Someone needs you, Lord. Someone's crying, Lord. Someone's weeping, Lord. Someone's dying, Lord. Come by here. Those people in the Georgia Sea Islands found that story about the Israelites groaning in their oppression, God heard them and God came to them. They took that story and turned it into, someone needs you, Lord, come by here. So don't go around and tell me that that's some fake fantasy, liberal feel-good song at a summer camp. That is the beginning of liberation theology. I am demanding that God do for me what God did for them, which means that I am the new Israelites, they were saying. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? We've got song after song after song created and performed on this soil that speak to the condition today of our churches, all our communities. But when you know people have not paid attention to the covenant, which says, I am the Lord your God. I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Therefore, you must pay attention to and love the alien and the stranger and because I delivered you, you must treat them likewise or else. And that is the covenant statement. And I can guarantee you that while a lot of church sanctuaries have the state flag, the federal flag, and maybe depending on the denomination, maybe their church flag, they don't have the covenant written so that everybody can see it. But that's what's happening today. The alien, the stranger, the oppressed are saying, we're tired of groaning in our oppression you will hear us. That gives me hope, but it also is a judgment. It's a judgment. But the fact that we have gone through this, like I said, this has been from the days they started singing those songs. There is a, doing your homework. The first great 
self-defined church, black church in the North was Mother Bethel AME Church in Philadelphia. Nathaniel Paul, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, they got tired of being mistreated by the Methodist Episcopal people in Philadelphia. And so they started their own church. They said, we want to have an institution that is ours, but we believe in the theology of Methodism, the irresistibility of God's grace. God's grace is so irresistible that when you confront it, you must respond to it. Those are the great revivals all over the New England. Well, when they started that church, it is still a sacred space that should be respected by everybody because it was a place where Harriet Tubman used to go and do fundraising for her abolitionist freedom journey. They are the ones in the North who started singing, Go Down Moses, because that was her code name. <laughs> so they're all in church organizing something for Harriet Tubman to go bring some more people up through the Underground Railroad, and they sing in a song of blessing. We don't know any of that. But every, as Bernice Reagan says in a wonderful documentary that was done 20 some years ago, the songs are free, every generation has its songs. Now, I'm amazed that some of those people in some of these cities in this country are singing some of the oldest black religious songs possible. But then I'm getting, I'm getting videos from students of mine or young Jesuit seminarians who are doing their songs in the minute. And it just amazes me that how you sustain your strength and, re and renew your courage is how you sing. Now, was that enough to answer your first question? <laughs> it was. It was. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I, a lot of this comes from, I hate to say it, but of course, those who maybe do not, did not fully embrace their baptismal call for yes. social justice up until this point. Yes. To say I have a lot to learn, my mother told me that when I was a seminarian studying philosophy at St. Louis University in the middle 1960s, mm. baby, you should learn something new every day. And I looked at her and I thought, well, that's pretty good. And until she was 96 years old when she died, she had a dictionary on a little stool by her chair in the living room she had the newspapers every day and watched television. And if there was a word she didn't understand, she picked up that dictionary. If there was some concept she didn't understand, she called me or my niece. Well, you know, because you're supposed to learn something new every day. <laughs> that's, yeah, okay. And that's why I'm still a teacher. And why yesterday we had a conference phone call about what are we going to do in given all of these circumstances at our university system out here in the Midwest, three campuses are dealing with diversity and inclusion. And my humble response was, instead of having a teleconference in which we all talk to each other, why don't we invite 10 to 15 of the students who are organizing things all over the Midwest and have them tell us what concerns them and what they would like to see on their campus? You cannot imagine the pushback 
<laughs> the resistance. The well, maybe, but what about, and then this, and then that. And I'm thinking, people, and I quoted him. I said, Obama just said something at a teleconference about you young people are carrying on the what the young people have done all through American history. And as I said to someone on the phone yesterday, they weren't putting people my age on slave ships. They were putting people as young as seven or eight years old up to 25, maybe 30 at the highest, because those were the only ones who had economic labor value. But from the ship itself, as they were being abused and mistreated and redefined by force, they were resisting. But they were singing. Hmm. We have the testimony of ship's doctors and captains and first mates who were writing in their journals and diaries. All of a sudden, this melancholy howl arose from the bowels of the ship. Yeah, because they were chained and couldn't reach somebody who had just been abused up on deck and thrown back into the bottom of the ship. And some 12-year-old girl or 12-year-old boy is crying because of what just happened to them. Somebody on the other side of the ship starts to hum and moan, and everybody else starts to hum and moan. And while they can't rock the child, they can rock the child with their voices. This is one of the most amazing things that we've got as a part of our culture. And they had to learn, the first generation didn't learn English. But by the time the second generation was adept, they were learning the Bible. They were learning a whole bunch of other stuff. And by the third generation, they were making all sorts of strategies to live up to what people did not want them to know. Hmm. So it's never going to stop your learning. And to go back to what this whole event is about and the whole circumstances of where our conversation is taking place, that's what music should be helping us do. I had a young man who was so depressed about something that had happened to him Sunday that he said he was so anguished by it. He, could, he tried yesterday morning to sit and pray, and all he wanted to do was cry. And he called me in the middle of the day, and I said, excuse me. I do that a lot to people. Excuse me. <laughs> um, I said, don't you think God was sitting there with you while you were crying? So what did you have to say to God? The fact that you sat there and cried because of this ugly thing that happened to you in church Sunday, you then had to live with it and you picked up the phone and called me because you wanted to share that experience and feel better. What else is prayer? And the thing is, this young man that I'm talking about has done little short videos and public service announcements about vocations and things. And as I, I saw one that he did, the way he was sitting in a chapel singing. Another one where he was walking down the street to his hometown singing. He's got it in his soul that I have got to find a way to heal myself. And I said, you don't have to be sitting there with some formula prayer that you say, that's the only way God's going to hear you. I know that my grandmother wandered around in the backyard in her garden 
in the kitchen and everywhere else humming all day long. Now, if she wasn't able to get to church, church came to her. That's kind of like what's happening right now, too. I mean, of course, the church has to come to us. We, we, we are the church. I think we, we, yeah, we, we have to, I mean, if we didn't realize that before COVID-19 also, I think hopefully we realize it now. And so, Thank yeah. you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's, and from my great tradition, we've got this nice little bitty old man who wears his white robe over there in Italy somewhere. I think his name is Pope Francis. I think so, who yeah. Is, who, yeah, I think that's what his name is. <laughs> He's been pretty much saying that relentlessly. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can say mass here in an empty chapel, but you know what? God is with you. Okay. Now, those people who would like to criticize him for one political purpose or another, they need to sit down and be humble because the man is showing us that, and then he said it about the death of George Floyd. If you don't deal with racism, you can't be Christian. And the Catholic bishops have had written two letters, one in 1979, one in 2018. Mm -hmm. Racism is a sin. Now, I have come at that with a very simple point of view. You got to go to confession and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I haven't heard that yet. I have not heard that. And I really want to. Mm -hmm. The victims of sexual abuse have wanted people to say that in the Catholic Church. They call it an apology. I call it going to confession. Mm -hmm. First of all, you say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Tell me how long it's been since the last time you admitted this truth. And then tell me exactly what you did which means you have thought about it and you know it was wrong and now we can talk about it. Now, let me tell you that God loves you even in the midst of your brokenness and your stubbornness. Now, this is what you're going to do. You're going to say, I'm sorry, and then you're going to leave here and go do something about what you did. Mm -hmm. We ain't got to, Father, forgive me for I have sinned yet. So I know we ain't got to, now what am I supposed to do about it? So you got all these people, thousands of people, in every city you can find saying, okay, we got some ideas. We're just going to help you out. We're going to get you to point five of your little strategy. And when people, what they did in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Mandela helped to organize and Desmond Tutu helped to run and between the Boers and the Bantus and the Zulus and all these other people, what did we do wrong? And if you will just admit it, the healing can start, but no one is exempt. We've all got a story, we've all got a song, and we've all got a need, not only to tell our story and be taken at our word, but also to hear other people's stories and take them at their word. So Father Brown, as we, as we wrap up our conversation here today, many of our listeners hopefully see what you're talking about and see the need to learn and see the need to go out. How, how do we go forward? How, how, what can we do to support not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but also 
just the, the, the black community that we live alongside in our country. Silence, total silence. And my 75 years of life, the most traumatic things that ever happened to me were two, three events of sexual abuse before I was nine years old, five years old, seven and nine. There were no words for it in those days, so I couldn't tell anybody. So I started developing migraine headaches when I was seven years old. And my father used to tell me on occasions that he thought I was making it up, that I wasn't as sick as I pretended to be. When I was 12 years old in the seventh grade, the nun in my seventh grade, when I suddenly had a sudden attack of a migraine, I laid my head down and she came over and hit me and said, sit up straight. And I said, I have a headache. She said, no, you don't. 12 year olds don't have headaches. That's this country. If I tell you that I am hurting, why do you want to negotiate me out of my pain? Why not do what Jesus did? Tell me to the woman who was hemorrhaging, what do you need? Jesus listened to people and took them at their word. If my life is valid, act like it. That's what goes back to all lives matter, black lives matter, red lives matter, anybody's. But if you want to be pro-life, trust me that my experience is valid. That's how I'm an effective priest and teacher and friend. Tell me what's wrong and we're going to deal with it. Not, oh, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. You're too young, you're too this, you're too that. And I don't feel like listening to you. So we need to be quiet and listen to do what the famous Ruby Sales said one long time ago. Tell me where it hurts and then act on it because that is the model of Jesus. Thank you, Father Brown, for your words. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for everything you're doing right now to help awaken us, to help us realize that this is not, that, that racism is not over in this country. But I hope and I pray that we as faithful, we as church can act on it, acknowledge the sin and, and not go back to it and not return to it again. And he does have the whole world in his hands. Mm -hmm. So thank you for inviting me to this. Thanks to Father Brown for his time today. I pray that we do better. I pray that we find the courage to all say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And that our actions never reflect the sin of racism again. Until then... I pray that the hearts of all people seek justice. I pray for the black community and the grief they hold, especially at this time. I honor their pain and I sit in silence, knowing that I have a lot to learn myself. We need to do better. I need to do better. Our education is now. We encourage you to head to the show notes of this episode for additional resources provided by Father Brown. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thank you for listening. Have a good week, and we will see you back here next Monday.